The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. John. In the evening of that same day, the first day of the week, the doors were closed in the room where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them. He said to them, Peace be with you, and showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were filled with joy when they saw the Lord, and he said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. For those whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. For those whose sins you retain, they are retained. Thomas, called the twin, who was one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. When the disciples said, We have seen the Lord, he answered, Unless I see the holes that the nails made in his hands and can put my finger into the holes they made, and unless I can put my hand into his side, I refuse to believe. Eight days later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. The doors were closed, but Jesus came in and stood among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he spoke to Thomas. Put your finger here. Look, here are my hands. Give me your hand. Put it into my side. Doubt no longer, but believe. Thomas replied, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, you believe because you see me now. Happier those who have not seen and yet believe. There are many other signs that Jesus worked and the disciples saw, but they are not recorded in this book. These are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing this, you may have life through his name. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, happy Easter. We get to say that for a long time, so don't let it go to waste. Use it up. Use up all your Easter blessings on everyone. Today's readings have a strong theme running through them. In that second chapter of Acts, the focus is on the communal life of the early Christians. They gather to worship, to go to this temple, um, to break bread. And it's in breaking of the bread, of course, that the disciples first encountered the risen Lord among them in a, in a whole new way. The reading ends, day by day the Lord added to their community those destined to be saved. In the psalm we hear, the Lord is my strength and my song, he is my saviour. Peter says in the epistle, God's power will guard you until the salvation which has been prepared is revealed and you are sure of the end to which your faith looks, that is, the salvation of your souls. And while it doesn't use the same word, finally we encounter in that episode with the apostles and Thomas, our good friend, these words. There were many other signs that Jesus worked. They were seen, but these aren't recorded. The ones that are recorded are there that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and in his name you would have life. I think very clearly the theme running through all of the readings is salvation. Salvation and faith. Salvation and belief. Salvation and retaining that which we were given in tradition, in the community. What is salvation? Does anyone know? Because 
Arguably, it's our core business as Christians. And so we need to be able to think about it and speak about it intelligently. Here, gathered as the faithful, and out there, everyone scattered far and wide. If we can't do that, we run into a very definite problem because the church exists to evangelize. And if we have a message we can't articulate, then suddenly our mission hits a dead end real quick. Um, why don't we have the language if that's the predicament we find ourselves in? I sometimes think back to the essays I had to write in the seminary and high school kids. I know you have to write your essays and people at university now, you're writing your essays. Um, it's not always the most pleasant thing. It's not like you look forward to it every day. But it's important to externalise your ideas and to synthesise them with other people's ideas. Otherwise, maybe you don't really know what to think or you don't know what to think. Um, so it's a good exercise. In a sense, we need to do that about salvation itself. What do we think about it? Um, firstly, I think it's worth noting the inescapable awkwardness about talking about salvation. It's an inescapably religious word, isn't it? It belongs to the religious lexicon. It doesn't really fit in any other um, category of things to talk about. And so it's foreign to the public discourse normally. Imagine for a second how strange it would be to hear someone in a non-religious setting talking plainly and openly and frankly about salvation. I mean, at one level, it would be very beautiful to see that if it was done well. If it's done poorly, we're sort of forced to cringe. We think, no, 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 that's not actually what we believe. And now the whole world has seen that poor articulation of our faith. Whether it's articulated well or not well, it's going to be strange. It's foreign. It's an odd topic. It's almost like a different genre has burst into the conversation suddenly. On that note, I think we'll all admit that salvation comes with baggage, doesn't it? To some degree, we're reminded of fundamentalism screamed through a megaphone, street preachers, misuse of scripture, bigotry, supposed prophecies that never are going to happen, not ever. Uh, twisting the scripture to think this or that is, is around the corner. Uh, I think of that line from the Elton John song, Jesus freaks out on the street handing tickets out for God. Maybe that's how the world sees evangelists. Um, Almost nothing can be as uncomfortable and, I think, unfruitful as a stranger walking up to me and saying, are you saved? It's awkward. And, and for me, I don't really think about whether or not I am. I'm more concerned what theology they're operating out of, what kind of response I'm going to give. What do they mean by saved? But I think the fact is those people in the streets, those people going door to door and knocking, whatever, they are missioning. They are, in fact, taking salvation to the public square. We might abstain from those methods of evangelization, sure. But what are we doing to broadcast this great message, the gospel, which is indeed the commission we receive at our baptism? We can't escape this call and we can't palm it off to someone else, complex as it may be. Each of us, I think, needs to commit the necessary time to translate the religious into the secular. You and I have to find the vocabulary to pose the divine and the eternal in the local tongue of Gladstone or Tannen or Miriam Vale 
or, or anywhere that we happen to be. And this is hard. Many of us, I think, probably struggle to do it. What often happens is we end up with a silly cartoon of religion instead that's given. We don't really translate, rather we tend to boil things down, to dumb them down. Can I ask, why would dumbing something down in the faith be of any help to anyone? I mean, we might do it by accident, but sometimes we actually aspire to do this. People say to me, Father, just dumb this down for me. It's the faith. The faith is not dumb. We can't do that. We lose um, something of the beautiful richness of it if, if we try and do that to it. I mean this very seriously. The reason salvation in particular and religion in general is probably seen as silly on the world scene is because of this. We either fail to translate the faith well into the local uh, culture and, 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 and um, you know, speech, or we've radically dulled it and it's lost all its potency. The shock of Christianity, the power, the controversy, the unique peculiarity. Christianity is super unique when you look at it alongside other religions. There's a beautiful line. I don't know if you've heard people say, oh, you know, all religions are basically the same. Christianity is just the same as everything else. We're all just trying to be good. There's a wonderful line by G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy. He says, people think that all religions are generally the same with a few minute differences. The truth is, religions are generally different with a few minute similarities. And he says, um, we look for things that are the same that may not in fact be the same. People point out that Jesus heard a voice from heaven and Buddha heard a voice from heaven. Well, where should a voice come from? The chimney? Um, of course a voice is going to come from heaven, if it's God. Uh, and he says, um, sometimes we see the rituals in different religions and we think, yeah, they're exactly the same thing. He says it's a little bit like comparing the ritual of the sword, where one, the sword is gently placed over both shoulders, and the other, the sword takes the man's head clean off. It's not at all the same for the two men involved in the rituals. Christianity is very unique indeed, and I think we need to be able to articulate its uniqueness and its power and shock and goodness. Let's make sense of salvation now, if we can, as soon as we can, for ourselves, and for the world to which we are sent. And let's start here. Salvation is a free gift. It's got almost nothing to do with how good you are. Sometimes we hear people say, oh, yeah, I think I'm good enough for this or that. God loves you infinitely, before or after your goodness. It's got nothing almost to do with that. We participate with it, but it's all about God's goodness. The free gift of this good, good father of ours. That said, it is something that we have to cooperate with. And I mean that in the most literal sense. Cooperation. We work with an other to work this thing out in our lives. And the other is God. Cooperating with um, the triune God himself. Um, it's not something so much to be claimed, snatched up and... and, and sort of held to myself, as it is something to be cultivated. There's a little parable in one of Dostoevsky's novels about this wicked woman who didn't have a good deed to her name because if salvation is participated with, then good deeds flow out naturally. But this old woman didn't have any, any deeds that she could recount to merit salvation for herself. So her angel is watching her in the lake of fire and he's lamenting. 
And he thinks to himself, there's got to be something that I can take to God. And he thinks, I know what it is. She once pulled an onion up out of the ground. I know that doesn't sound like much, but it's the best good deed he could think of. So he takes this to God. He says, she once pulled an onion up out of the ground. And God says, okay, pull her up by the onion. And if it can support her, she can enjoy paradise. So the angel goes and he says, take hold of this. It's the onion you pulled up. She grabs it and she starts to come up out of the fire. And in fact, it supports her. She's come out of the fire. But as she leaves the lake, all the other sinners start to grab her ankles so that they can be drawn out too. And she looks and she kicks them off. And she says, let go of me. I'm to be pulled up, not you. It's my onion, not yours. And at that point, the onion crumbles and she falls back into the lake. Salvation cannot be snatched. Once we hoard it, it it changes its nature. It stops to be saving. It starts to become toxic. Salvation must be made fruitful in us. Think of that beautiful first commandment that God gives Adam and Eve in the garden. Be fruitful and multiply. If we've received God's mercy, the immediate thing we do is give it away. Multiply it a hundredfold. Spread it far and wide. That's witness to the salvation in us already. We're meant to bear fruit, and it's not the kind of fruit that can be snapped, frozen, and kept away for when we finally have an appetite for it. You know, heaven is not usually the first thing on our minds, but maybe it ought to be, because we can't wait for when we finally feel like it. There are times when we do feel like it, when our appetite for salvation peaks, such as during war, or in sickness, or while oppressed, or when approaching death, or when grieving the death of our loved ones. In times like these, the hunger pangs of salvation are acute. We feel them. Suddenly it's all relevant. What about when life is full of ease and God's free gift of salvation is the last thing on our mind? None of us can presume to have stored away salvation for ourselves because salvation doesn't work like that, no matter how many onions we might have to our name. We can only trust that God has stored it away, as we heard in those readings. He's stored it in himself, and he's revealed it in the risen Lord who is with us, always. That brings us, I think, to today's solemnity, today's feast. Salvation is inescapably bound up in the person of Jesus, who gently walks into the false security of our locked upper rooms and look at that image by the way that's actually what is happening Faustina is depicting Jesus walking into the upper room into the disciples fear and shame and woundedness and confusion and feeling lost the Lord comes into that and speaks his divine peace directly to where it's needed his very presence is medicinal because he is the saviour he saves us He comes to seek and save the lost and to take away our sin. Something that's equally uh, difficult to translate, but something that's part of our proclamation to the world. I tell you, a Christianity without sin and salvation is not Christianity. We're talking about something else. And that's not what we were commissioned to talk about to the world. I think the most basic response we can get from people is saved. From what? And in a way, it's a good question. We could say, well, everything. 
Because literally everything is hemming in our lives when you think about it, from age to pain that I encounter to friction and relationships to everything. Everything seems to steal uh, the joy from my life if I let it. They're kind of like cars that begin to depreciate as soon as we leave the showroom. <laughs> um, but how about we put it like this? Is it better to exist or to not exist? Which would we prefer? This is actually one of St. Anselm's proofs for the existence of God, by the way. Anselm says God is that than which no greater can be thought. Think of your highest conception of the highest possible thing. God transcends that. I can think of an utterly transcendent God who doesn't really exist. So the true God has to at least exist. At least. Therefore, the true God is one who exists. It might sound like a bit of philosophical cartwheels, but that's a good argument. Because it's good to exist. And in fact, you exist. You're here. You matter. Why are you here? None of us asked to be here, by the way. You didn't cause your existence, you don't sustain your existence, and you didn't even, you didn't even ask to be here. One philosopher calls this the throneness of life. You just find yourself tossed into the world. Oh, <laughs> where am I? Now I need to do something with my existence. It's a burden, or it can be. Why are you here? Because God desired a world that had you in it. Existence is lacking to God if you're not here. That's a very definite claim we can make. Otherwise, you wouldn't exist. And if existing at all is good, then existing for 70 or 80 years in this life is good. And if existing for the whole of life is good, then existing eternally is good. It's in fact what you were made for. And if happiness in this life, whatever we experience, wherever we pick it up, is good, then eternal happiness, which has been stored away for each of us, is worth waiting for, is worth, in fact, spending eternity on. Keep in mind, finally, I'll say this in closing. If heaven is where we are hoping to go, we're going to have to condition ourselves for it. We're going to have to do some kind of preparation, just like we do for anything. Literally anything we embark on takes preparation. Heaven can't be the one thing that doesn't. I'll have no distractions in heaven. Am I able to live like that? There's no iPads, no social media, no sports. None of the things that I would retreat from life and retreat into my loneliness to enjoy. None of that's available to me in heaven. Whatever goodness there was to be found in them will be there. But they themselves would have long since vanished. Or maybe it's truer to say I won't be able to play my Nintendo Wii unless I'm playing with Jesus. Because that's the point of recreation. Recreation, being with the creator. It's not, a, it's not an opportunity for me to recede into myself as if I occupy a universe of one. There is no such thing. And that's certainly not heaven. And not only that, but remember, we'll rise bodily. That's what we celebrate in Easter, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So in the fullness of time, I'll have my soul, my body, and nothing to distract me. Gosh, that's very intimidating. Um, I don't know how we're going to condition ourselves for that, but we ought to start. And maybe our best help today is, in fact, the divine mercy of God, which just utterly floods us, totally changes who and what we are, 
We start to own the sway of God. That's our message. Sin and salvation make no sense without mercy. There's no hope without that. And what could be more peace-giving and easy to articulate to any language, any place, at any age ever than a God who desires you to exist and who lovingly embraces you for eternity? With this message that we place all our faith in, we're now sent out into the world. As Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you.